He's worthy of it all, isn't he? And we sang that song on Christ the solid rock. I stand, and that's where we stand this morning. Would you just pray with me before we open the word? Lord, you are worthy of it all. We just sang it, and we mean it because it's true. God, we bring you um, our worship this morning. We bring you our worship in the context of the life that we're in the middle of living. All the ups and the downs, the joys and the sorrows, the laughter and the tears, all of it, that's the life we live. In the midst of that, we bring our worship because you and you alone are worthy. So Lord, lift up the eyes of our hearts this morning. Help us to see you for who you are. Help us to see ourselves for who we are. And help us to see you as our Savior. God, this is a work that only you can do. And we open the word, but we're just humans. And Lord, unless you open the eyes of our heart, unless you open our understanding, we will just understand as humans. But God, you can do something that is so much greater than our own ability and our own strength as we open your word this morning. So we're trusting you to continue doing that. And we pray all of it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you're new here this morning, my name is Floyd, and if you uh, if you keep coming, keep coming to sit where you're at. I'll keep coming to stand where I stand, and that's kind of the arrangement we have here at Cornerstone. We do the majority of the preaching and teaching here. We are in the book of Hebrews. Um, we are ready for chapter 7. We're going to end that, and we're going to get into chapter 8 of Hebrews. The, the um, I think, kind of the thrust of this particular text is we're going to see this word, um, guarantor, guarantor, or I don't even know how to say it, like the guarantor is the way we would say it. Um, guarantor, um, but it's in reference to Jesus, and there's a lot that's said in this text about the sureness of his promise, and the fact that when God says something, that you can rest on it, that it's as sure as anything else, in fact, it's more sure than anything else, because we read earlier, a chapter or two ahead, it says that because God could not see anything greater than himself, he swore by himself to Abraham. And we're going to continue seeing that theme of the promise and the oath. It used the word oath, this covenant that God makes with his people, and how that when God says something, it is so absolutely certain that you can rest on it. I want to very quickly just talk a little bit about where we are at in the book of Hebrews. If you've been here the last number of Sundays, you know I've mentioned this several times that Hebrews is essentially written as a sermon, but it's also this progression that's going somewhere, which is why scholars refer to it as something that's written as a sermon. I don't know a better way to illustrate this than sort of with steps. And I borrowed some from the ESV Study Bible, which, by the way, if you want a really, really good resource that does a lot of exegetical work for you, the ESV Study Bible is really hard to beat. 
It's, you know, I have one. It never leaves my desk because it's so big and thick. But if you want a really good study Bible, I highly recommend it. And so I, I borrowed some from that to sort of create this. But I want to just give you somewhere of an, somewhat of an idea where we were at. You know, we were in chapters 1 to 2 where it talks about Christ being superior to the angels. Talk about it in him being greater than Moses in chapter 3. Talks about the promised rest as we went from chapter 3 into chapter 4. Um, we've really been in the, the a subject of Christ as the great high priest, the final high priest, as we've worked through chapters 4, 5, 6, and all of 7. And if I would show you where we're at today, we are about right there, ready to take that step, um, where we are going to start talking about the new covenant. So this morning's text, basically... We're going to have one foot here and one foot here this morning on our, in our text. I don't know if that's helpful to you or if it's interesting at all, but it's helpful to me to kind of get some kind of a frame of reference for where we are at in the book of Hebrews. And then, of course, it will end with the last several chapters being the preacher making application. And basically, he has built on all of this stuff He's superior to the angels. He's greater than Moses. The pro he is the promised rest. He is the great high priest. He's the guarantor of the new covenant. And he ensures and makes sure that we are invited into this new covenant relationship with him, with him that we're going to spend the next several weeks on. But then we're going to end up with doing exactly what the preacher does to the Hebrews, and we're going to make some very practical application and a call to faith and endurance based on all of these other things. Because as you know, this book is written to a group of people who were wrestling with how much of their past to bring into the present. And his argument is that the past was, was designed essentially to point to the present, and that the present reality that they were living in, which was the grace of God, it, given through Christ, was the fulfillment of the past promises. So let's get into the text this morning. Hebrews chapter 7, I want to pick it up in verse 20, and then I'm going to read to verse 7 of chapter 8. So Hebrews chapter 7, and it was not without an oath... For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor. You know, I really struggle with that word. The guarantor, I'm just going to say. The guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heaven. He has no need, like those high priests, 
to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later, un, later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And before we jump into chapter 8, I just want to note a couple things that, that the writer of Hebrews is saying about Jesus, our great high priest. He's making the argument that Jesus stands as a high priest based on the promise and the oath of God. And he says, not like the high priests of old who were basically brought into their role of high priest because they were the son of a high priest. It was by genetic lineage that they were brought into that role. So Jesus is different in that he is there because of a promise or an oath of God. And the writer of Hebrews believes that this makes the position of high priest more stable, more steady, and more reliable than if he had simply been born into the position. He's like the God of heaven. Now, you could argue that Jesus is high priest by means of genealogy if you acknowledge that his father is, in fact, God. But the writer of Hebrews went back and he drew from that historic figure, Melchizedek, if you were here last Sunday. And he draws from Melchizedek because Melchizedek is both king and priest, and Melchizedek is not in the, the lineage of Levi. And he has just said that Jesus also is not in the lineage of Levi. He's in the lineage of Judah, which if you know your Bible, you know is actually the tribe that the king is supposed to come from, the great deliverer is supposed to come from. So here is Jesus, who is both king and high priest, born of the tribe of Judah, which they were looking for a political king from. And he says, but he's really serving a priestly function in your lives. And not because he was born into it, but because of the promise of God. And then he goes back into Psalm 110 and quotes from there in verse 21. And he says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Like you see the... the intention of the writer to make sure that you understand this is solid you can rest on this terms like the lord has sworn and he will not change his mind and this seems to be very important to the writer of hebrews is that you and i would read this two thousand years later and that we would find for ourselves this steady foundation of belief and faith that we would rest our lives on a promise of God that cannot be changed and that will not be nullified. And regardless of the circumstances that Christians have lived in for the last 2,000 years, times of ease and prosperity, times of difficulty and persecution, the God that they serve has not changed one iota. He stands throughout eternity, and he does not change. And when he says he will do something, he will do it. And so it's based on this promise and this sureness of the character and the nature of who our God is that he says, this is what makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. It's like, this isn't just wishful thinking. This is rock solid. You can build your life on this stuff. And these priests who would live, serve, die, successor would come, like Jesus isn't like that. He stands forever. And then 
And I really, really like this, and I think it's worth us taking a moment. And again, I know this stuff is so basic and fundamental to our faith, and yet it is essential that we do not lose the awe of this truth that he comes not like the high priest who would offer sacrifices for daily, daily for, the, for his own sins and then for the people, verse 27. He says, but he did this once when he offered himself. And the sufficiency and the completeness of, this, of the cross is essential to everything we believe. Here's why it mattered to those people. Because they were still trying to figure out, should we be taking a blood sacrifice to the temple for our sins? Yes, we believe in Jesus, but is there something more that we should be doing? And the writer of Hebrews is making this argument with a sense of intensity and ferocity. Don't look to anything else. The work is complete. It's enough. And the sacrifice of Jesus once and for all, his blood sacrifice of his own life for the sins of the world, nullifies the necessity for any more blood sacrifice ever again. And there is no need. Now, we're living in a context where most likely none of us have ever offered or saw our parents or grandparents offer an animal as a sacrifice for the sake of our sins, for forgiveness of sins. And so it's easy to read this and think, well, of course, I get this. This is obvious stuff to me. But then we start this sort of subtle line of reasoning that goes something like, you know, I've really felt distant from God because I haven't been in his word like I should. I haven't been reading like I should. I, I was going to read a chapter a day and then I just, you know, got busy. Or I haven't been in prayer like I should. Now, don't understand me to say that those things don't matter. They do matter. And that they might even have something to do with why someone feels distant from God. But there's something very subtle that happens that I think the Hebrews were wrestling with as well. And that is, does the sacrifice and the forgiveness of God depend on my faithfulness or on his. And the writer of Hebrews is arguing it depends on his, not on our own. Let's carry on in chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion 
to look for the second. So, see how he's turning the corner there? He's kind of putting his next foot on the next step. We're going to start talking about covenant and the nature of the new covenant. And the verse 1 of chapter 8 is that transition point where he says, based on what I've just said about the high priest, now I want to talk to you about the nature of this covenant. But before he does that, he uses this very interesting imagery where he talks about Jesus as the one who is seated, not will be seated, is seated. And it is this idea of resting because it is finished, because the work has been completed. And if there remained more work to be done to earn or to win our salvation somehow, Christ could not sit. But because it is finished, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. I want to go back to verse 25 of chapter 7 and kind of, again, drawing from this idea of sort of stepping from one idea to the other as the preacher is doing here. And verse 25 is sort of a summary verse of the previous three chapters because he summarizes a lot of what he has been saying by saying this, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. First and foremost, he uses this term uttermost and I love that. He, there is the power to save without any reservation whatsoever. What exactly do you have in your past that doesn't fall under the category of uttermost? Is there something that you have done or that has been done to you that doesn't fall under the word uttermost? Because I can't think of anything. And is there a cleansing that is unavailable to you or me that is unique to us that Christ can't save us from, that doesn't get addressed by the word uttermost? And there's different places in Scripture where he uses very inclusive and exclusive language to describe the forgiveness and the redemption and the grace of God. And it's for that reason. So that you and I would read his word and that we would understand that there is nothing that I have done. And we often think in terms of our own sin and our own rebellion. But I think it's also, and I believe with all my heart, that it's also theologically accurate to include in that the wounds and the sins that have been done against us. That he is also able to save you and I from not only the things that we have done, but the things that have been done to us. You know, guilt is what I feel when I feel bad over what I've done. Shame is what I feel when I feel bad about who I am. 
And the power of shame many times is far stronger than even the power of guilt. And that shame that you and I carry around sometimes ought also to to fall in the category of he can save to the uttermost. And I've been getting some, and some of you are aware, I've been doing some reading and getting some, taking some classes and training on, on abuse awareness and so forth, and I'll refer to that in a moment. But, but this, this issue of shame, this sense of God doesn't really like me, is incredibly powerful. Often, if not always, it's attached to something that happened in our lives. There's always lies that come with painful events of our lives. Things like, you know, you're not good enough. God will never forgive you. He forgives everyone else but not you. He doesn't want you, really. People don't like me. People don't want me around. They only tolerate me. I mean, there's just a ton of lies that come with shame. But when the writer of Hebrews is saying that this Jesus, our great high priest, is seated in heaven, the work is complete, and he has addressed all of the sin and all of the brokenness, it also includes our shame. That sense of failure we can bring to him. You know, this sermon probably should have been called Draw Near Part 2. Last Sunday we talked about drawing near because it sort of ended in verse 19 with drawing near. Well, this passage also just continues that thought of drawing near. And he is inviting us in this verse. He says, this is words that I'm saying, and I put it up on the screen because I want us to really understand exactly what he's saying. This is not written to everybody that's alive in the world. There's a qualifier here, isn't there? It's those who draw near to God through Christ. The experience of being saved to the uttermost is not for those who hold God at a distance. It's for those who draw near through Christ. He says, for those who will draw near, this is the reality that you and I can live in that we experience this uttermost salvation. Secondly, he is eternally available and he's alive. And it says, since he always lives, again, exclusive language, always lives. Always is an all-encompassing word. And he's alive. Our Savior is not laying in a tomb somewhere. His body's not laying in a tomb. You know, in a few months, we're going to celebrate the resurrection. But it's something that we ought to celebrate every day of our lives. Because the theology of the resurrection is that you and I can also experience new life on a daily basis because our Savior is alive and he is always living in order to make intercession for us. Therefore, he is the, the compassionate intercessor never sleeps never slumbers and you and I can go through those seasons where it feels like we're distant 
He doesn't go anywhere. There is not a moment of regret that has somehow disqualified us. There are not missed opportunities. You can't reach 60 and say, you know, when I was 50, I had a chance to reach out and experience God, and I blew it, I missed it, and I don't think I'll ever get that chance again. That's not what always lives to make intercession looks like. That's not what it looks like at all. And if you're here this morning, you think, well, there was a moment back in my past somewhere where I had this really cool opportunity to experience this closeness and this intimacy with God, but I missed the opportunity. I mean, there was a window of time, and I missed the window of time, and I think God just kind of closed the window. You're not understanding what this looks like. This always lives to make intercession. It is always available wherever you are in whatever stage of life and whatever day you're alive. It is available to you and I that we could draw near to him and that he is always, ever alive, seated in heaven, interceding for you and I out of compassion. But I mentioned the shame that keeps us from it. Our rebellion keeps us from drawing near. Our shame keeps us from drawing near. The things that we regret keeps us from drawing near. And the writer of Hebrews is wanting us to see something different than our flesh is telling us. He wants us to see a Jesus for who he really is, not for who we tend to think about him in the context of our shame and our pain. I came across a story in, actually in this class that I was taking, um, came out of a a book called Mending the Soul. And I just thought, this illustrates so powerfully what happens. It was a story of a lady named Linda. This is how it describes Linda. Highly accomplished concert pianist and music professor, told of growing up in a highly religious, abusive home. Her father was a minister who chronically abused his children physically, sexually, and spiritually. Both of Linda's brothers committed suicide, and as an adult, Linda suffered a nervous breakdown, completely losing her ability to perform music. He talked about his, her dad was confronted, and he denied it, and continued his work as a minister. And this counselor that was writing this book was working with this lady, and just the, the brokenness of that situation. Growing up in a situation that was in a home that was you know, a lot of conversation about God, and I'm not going to read a lot of the details, but there was just this, such a brokenness, beatings that would be followed with prayer type of thing. Um, and obviously was incredibly difficult to process the shame of all of that what struck me was, this is, this is what Linda says about her growing up. She says, in Sunday school, we used to sing, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. And it listed colors, red and yellow, black and white. Remember that song? And she says, for some reason, I never, I never felt like I was on that list. I'd sing as loud as I could so that God would hear my voice. And I'd look over at the mural of Jesus gathering the children in his loving arms, and I'd wish I could be one of them. You see what shame 
can do. It can make a little girl believe that Jesus wouldn't want her. And she hadn't done anything wrong. It was what had happened to her. And the reason that I bring this up, if I you know, went on and was reading, her pathway to finding healing was to draw near to a God who would save to the uttermost. Even the things that her dad had done to her, even the lies that she had believed that Jesus would not invite her into his lap also. And that the healing came through seeing Jesus for who he was, not for who she had been told he was. There isn't hardly any of us that don't carry some shame, either over our own actions or things that happened that were out of our control. And what we do with those moments and how we interpret those times dramatically affects the way that we live the rest of our lives. And the lie is that somehow our situation isn't even addressed in the Bible. Like we think that the Bible was written for dirty, rotten sinners. And it was. You know what it was also written for? It was also written for people who had been sinned against, who had been wounded. And there's a lot of the scriptures that address that. And then we come to places like this where it addresses both. And that's the part that I find so encouraging, is these all-inclusive words, like always, uttermost, seated, ever lives. Like these words give hope because they include my situation and your situation, and they present for you and I a Jesus who deeply cares about what has gone on and what has happened, about pain you may have experienced or are experiencing, about things that you may have done. And he stands and he says, he doesn't say, get away. All of these things are said in the context of what? Draw near. Come in. Draw near. And we stand there like, God, but you don't know. Like, there's something wrong with me. He's like, yes, there is. Draw near. I died for that too. God, you don't know what I've done. I do know what you've done. Draw near. I died for that too. And I'm incredibly encouraged by the fact that this writer of Hebrews does such a fantastic job of drawing from old covenant imagery that they were familiar with, that we should be familiar with if we're, if we're reading our Old Testament like we should be. And he says, that stuff, it was given by God. And he says, I'll tell you why it was given by God. You see it in chapter 8. He says, it was given so that you would see shadows and copies of the real thing. All of that was this giant arrow pointing us to the one true high priest who ever lives to make intercession for you and I. And that regardless of our story, if you like Linda ever thought 
He wouldn't want me. Or if you've ever thought, I I just can't get there. You don't understand who our Jesus is. And he invites all of us to draw near. Everyone. And then he goes, one of the last verses in the text that I read this morning is in chapter 8, verse 6, which is also sort of a summary verse where he's talking about this great covenant. And he says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. And that's going to be the argument as we move through the next several chapters is that not only has he cleansed us and forgiven us and he saves us to the uttermost, he ever lives to make intercession, but he invites those who will draw near into a deep, trusting covenant relationship that is defined, and we're going to see it in, by the time we get to chapter 11, toward the end of chapter 10, we're going to see that trusting relationship defined as faith. He's like, this is the invitation. Draw near. I want, you, I want to be in this relationship with you that is defined as a covenant relationship that was sort of pointed to and modeled with his covenant relationship that he had with Israel that was then fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then, it, and then we are grafted in. And he's like, and he is inviting us into this new covenant. He says he mediates this new covenant that is so much more excellent and better because it's enacted on better promises. This is a covenant that is built on the oath and covenant of God. And we stand here invited into that kind of a relationship with Jesus. A covenant trusting relationship, which begs the question, are you in a covenant relationship with Jesus this morning? You're like, well, I'm here, ain't I? That doesn't mean you're in a covenant relationship. Do you trust him? Would you trust him with everything? Have you experienced salvation to the uttermost? And is he your personal mediator? In other words, have you ever drawn near? Do you continue to draw near? Now go back and repeat what I said. This is not universal. This is for those who draw near. Sermon in a sentence. Jesus has guaranteed a place for you. I appreciate the fact that they use that word guarantee. Now, we live in a world where guarantees sometimes are not worth the paper they're written on. This is different. I hope I don't need to tell you that. This is based on the character and the nature of an unchanging God. I mean, read the passages, if you haven't been here for the last several weeks, read the passages ahead if you want to know who is this God who would guarantee, who is he? And how could he make these promises? He makes them by his own character and nature in that he says in chapter 6, it is impossible for him to lie and that he is unchanging. Based on those, he guarantees a place for you and for me. You know how hard it is sometimes to get that from our head to our heart? We know this stuff, don't we, at a head level. But when it gets to our heart, it changes everything. Because it, 
it delivers us from all the guilt and the shame and allows us to enjoy this deep walk of faith where we trust him and him alone. We have some deeper study questions and an old story. Back in 1834, there was a guy by the name of Edward Moat. And Edward was a cabinet maker who later became a pastor in England. And he was also a hymn writer. And he was on his way to work one morning. And he had just had the words of this song. And he thought, I should write a song about the gracious experience of a Christian. And I'm pretty sure that he must have been reading Hebrews. Because in verse 2 of this song, he talks about, In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the gale. And by the way, we just sang this song. And I did not know that Amber was going to sing it. And she didn't know I was going to talk about it. You get to verse 3. And it says, his oath and his covenant and blood support me in the whelming flood. That sounds a lot like what we just read, doesn't it? Where it talks about his oath, his covenant. The night of his crucifixion, Jesus shared the cup with the disciples and he says, drink this. This is the blood. This is a new covenant purchased for you. And then he gets to the course, and you know, he's in those familiar words on Christ the solid rock I stand. I hope you were paying attention when we sang it a few moments ago. All other ground is shifting sand. And Edward had this hymn that he'd written. He just had it in, his, in the pocket of his coat. And about a week later, he was visiting a friend whose wife was dying, and and he wanted to pray for her, and his friend said, I think we should sing a hymn first. But they didn't have any hymn book handy in the room, and Edward says, actually, I have a hymn. I'll just sing it for you. So he pulls this thing out of his pocket. And he just stood there and sang this hymn. On Christ the solid rock I stand. His oath, his covenant, and blood support me in the whelming flood. And his friend came to him later and he said, he said, those, the words of that hymn were so helpful for my wife on her deathbed. And Edward said, that was when I decided this hymn was worth publishing. And he said, even though I had written a thousand, I sent that one to the publisher. And here we are, like 2,000 years later, still singing that song. You know why? Because we're all like that, that dying woman, aren't we? We're all dying. It's a matter of how fast and when it happens. And we live in these bodies of death that experience pain and hurt and sorrow. And sometimes we just need to be reminded that it is his oath, it is his covenant, and it is his blood, like the writer of Hebrews said, that supports us in this overwhelming flood. And I don't know where you're at this morning, 
But I suspect that there's a few of us who just need to be reminded of that this morning. That it is God in the sureness of his promise, in the compassion of his nature, who invites us to draw near. Amber, if you guys want to go ahead and come on up, I want to close. And so, how do you draw near? I hope I don't need to tell you, but it's not complicated. You don't have to put on a certain kind of clothes. You don't have to get like the wording just right. Get the in, intonations just, just perfect, you know, where you inflect the words. or None of that, no. No. It is just a very simple request. Lord, I want to be near you. I want to draw near to you. I believe your word says that you will save me to the uttermost, that there is nothing that you can't save. That, that you even invite me, even though I don't feel like it at times, to draw near that you ever live to make intercession, that you invite me into a new covenant. We're still dying people, and we still need to be reminded of those words, don't we? Let's stand. Prayer team, if a few of you could come. I'd also like to just invite anyone who, if you wanted to slip out of your seat in just a physical action of wanting to draw near to God, I just invite you to do that this morning. You slip up and... Um, somebody would be happy to pray with you. And uh, you may be here this morning and, and there's just something there that you're just struggling with in the past. Maybe it's the present and you just need to draw near to God. Stand in complete faith and confidence that God, I believe you will save to the uttermost. Lord, this morning, each of us lives in a very broken context. We live in a world that is full of sin and suffering, and we live in bodies that are gradually getting old and developing new aches and pains and that will one day die. And in that context, Lord, you invite us into this covenant relationship with you that will last longer than our bodies will. That we can enjoy the sweetness of a relationship with you. So Lord, I pray for every person in this room this morning. God, I pray that you would help us to, um, to experience you in a fresh and new way as the one who guarantees a place for us in the family and with you and in your presence. We love you, Jesus. God, I pray that you would touch each person here this morning who may have some wounds that need to be healed, that you'd help them to find the healing and be safe to the uttermost. God, I pray that you'd touch each person who may be wrestling with some guilt. God, that you'd touch them, that you'd save them to the uttermost. I pray it all in the name of Jesus.